Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining me for episode 219, DVOC Updates, which DVOC is COVID spelled backwards. And we'll also be talking today about long haulers as well as concerns with censorship. Today, I am joined by Brady Miller, my husband, but no worries, Becky will be back next week, and that will definitely be a welcomed thing, but here we are with Brady Miller today. Yeah, I'll try to do my best, although I don't have a medical background. I feel like I hear enough of Allie's rants to be <laughs> somewhat on top of it. Yeah, I think, I think we'll get through it just fine. So before we go into today's episode, and there's tons of info I have to share with you guys, updates over here is that we are rocking and rolling with the 12-week virtual food as medicine ketosis class that launches January 6th. So be sure to go on over to AllieMillerRD.com backslash ketosis hyphen class to snag your spot. Again, if you like the podcast, if you're interested in learning more about functional medicine, this is not just a 101 keto class by any strike of the imagination. This goes deep dive into things like hormones, adrenals, the HPA stress access, leaky gut, the microbiome, literally any area of dysfunction in your body, including nutrient deficiency, toxicity, and so much more, we address in our Food as Medicine 12-week program. We also have an exclusive private chat board that we host over on Slack, only for members and we have categories there where we break down your questions on supplements and labs as well as address and share recipes in the community and troubleshoot things like intermittent fasting and macros. Our 12-week virtual food as medicine program also has a really unique protocol that can be customized to your needs. So there are adaptions that we've set up for autoimmune conditions, for pregnancy and breastfeeding, and so much more. Go on over to AllieMillerRD slash ketosis hyphen class. Grab your spot. We can't wait to meet you on January 6th for our three-month program launch. All right. And also, today's episode is sponsored by Fond Bone Broth. Fond is truly wellness well made. Their slow simmered and lovingly tendered broths are a favorite in our household. In fact, this morning I was sipping on the Nopalito, which is their seasonal blend of their bone broth base. They always use chicken in all of their recipes and it's free range chicken. I love that they use quality proteins. Uh, they put the backs, of course, and the necks and the feet in there so it gets very gelatinous and collagenous. So you get that oopy goopy facelift for your gut. Uh, but the Nopalito has habanero pepper as well as cilantro and nopales or cactus in there. Really fabulous. Uh, all of their different flavors, whether it is the turmeric cracked black pepper or the beet serrano, are really like a health elixir. It's 
pretty much the only bone broth that I can welcome in, as a replacement for a glass of wine at the end of the day, which says a lot. <laughs> and I've been enjoying them as kind of like a sous chef in a jar. I used that Nopalito in a shrimp curry over the weekend, and it was a great way to kick up the spice. So definitely go on over to fondbonebroth.com, put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout to let them know that you found out about us through the Naturally Nourished podcast. And also when you put in AllieMillerRD at checkout, you will save on your order. All right. Here we go, Braid. <laughs> so let's talk updates on mass. Yeah. I think your audience is well aware where you sit. And I know you put out a blog back in May, but let's start with... Are masks necessary and do they actually work? You know, so as I've said in past episodes, it was really scientific consensus that masks do not reduce respiratory viral transmission. And this was scientific consensus, meaning all different medical doctors, practitioners, and medical organizations agreed that this was the case when we're talking about past uh, other respiratory viruses, whether it was SARS, whether it was, you know, um, various forms of influenza and so forth. And all of a sudden, even our prof- our medical professionals and teams, like Anthony Fauci said back in, you know, January, February, that masks are not necessary, only to be used for medical professionals. Now, this took quite a turn or pivot as the narrative of this pandemic really started to be streamlined. And uh, so there's been some studies that have tried to demonstrate the efficacy of mask wearing. However, most of them really do fall short. A lot of them are observational studies that fail to look at things like obesity, inflammation, microbiome, the use of traditional Chinese herbs, for instance, in certain areas. And a lot of them that have been looking in a research format are in a controlled environment, not out in the real world. However, there was a study published November 18th, so this is the update for y'all, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, the Denmark COVID-19 trial. And this looked at a randomized controlled trial of more than 6,000 individuals to assess the effectiveness of surgical masks against SARS-CoV-2. And they found that masks did not statistically significantly reduce the incidence of infection. So they found among the mask wearers, there was 1.8% that ended up testing positive, and there was 2.1% among the controls. Again, this was not statistically uh, significant. And of the mask wearers, they did fall into the category that wore them exactly as instructed. So we can take out that you know misuse as an argument. And also the surgical masks were provided to those participants and they were changed out every eight hours. So I think that that's quite compelling literature. And I've talked before, there was a Journal of Nature study that was done on masks and it looked at influenza as well as uh, um, COVID. And they found that the individuals that were not coughing um, you know, 19 times per 30 minutes, which that sounds like a symptomatic individual. That's a lot of coughs in 30 That's a minutes. a lot of coughs. Yeah, I mean, right? That's like all the time. You'd look at the person and be like, get away from me. You're sick. Stay home. So when they took out the people that were not coughing on average 19 times per 30 minutes that were infected with COVID, which would be otherwise known as an asymptomatic individual, right? They had a positive case 
but not symptoms, not coughing, there was no variance between them being masked or unmasked. However, of course, for the individual that had a higher viral load and was symptomatic, there was a variance within the mask wearing. So it's this idea of, yes, if you are sick and you must leave your house, maybe wearing a mask will protect others. But if you are asymptomatic, there is just not any literature that demonstrates any benefits or outcomes. All right. So let's hit on what your concerns are with masks and are they actually harmful? So I've touched on the five points that I've made in my blog back in May, which I will reshare. And and those five points were that, you know, they can create a false sense of security. The mask wearing can push vapor into your eyes and your ocular tissue can create contagion. Uh, we also talked about misuse and wearing and touching the mask. So you touch surface and you touch your mask and then you're actually driving infection to yourself. We talked about the interference of respiratory and immune function. So that barrier actually is going to interfere with how you expel. So if you were inhaling infected particle, which I've also discussed, a virus is so, so tiny, it's like a mosquito going through a soccer mask. The the fibers of these masks are just ineffective to block viral particle, right? And so if you were to breathe in infected particle or be exposed, Wearing the mask actually can push the viral load deeper into your pulmonary system. There's the stress impact. Wearing the mask can drive epinephrine and cortisol, which can throw off the way that the immune system functions. And then also they can create that impact on dehumanizing and separating us from nonverbal communication and empathy. You know, we've seen in military studies that when there's no facial recognition, it's easier to kill. And we know when we look at CDC statistics that suicide is the number two cause of death from ages 10 to 34. So all of that logic and theory aside, we have to talk about some new stuff. So that's all I've, I've discussed that in past episodes. Um, you can check out my highlights in the show notes for a deep dive on all those and the blog. But I want to talk about a German neurologist physician, Dr. I'm going to totally butcher her name. My apologies. Dr. Margarita Margareta Grice Bryson. And she is a world-renowned neurologist, and she continues to warn about the oxygen deprivation and permanent potential neurological damage. She talks about how the hippocampus of the brain cannot survive longer than three minutes without oxygen. So when we're looking at something like a pulse ox, which is a pulse oximeter, which you'd put on your finger to try to read the oxygenation saturation of your blood, it's not going to determine or show us the sensitivity factor of that oxygen flow to the brain. And our brain cells, especially in children that are growing, developing, and trying to, in their brain activity is on a just high, high uh, level of demand, right, from their growth. Um, we can see symptoms like headaches, drowsiness, dizziness, concentration issues, slowing down of reaction time, and this can impact our cognition. But these symptoms will disappear when the oxygen deprivation is chronic, yet the damage continues to come. So remember like the first time you ever wore probably a facial covering to the grocery store? Did you, Brady, experience any of that like wooziness or like just feeling a little off or... Not so much. My glasses just fogged up a ton. So you got the facial moisture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you've always worn like a bandana, right? Yeah. So you at least have that output. 
Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I think that these are a lot of symptoms that I heard of at least from individuals in clinic and definitely with kiddos. And the problem is again, just because you're not experiencing symptoms anymore, your body did adapt to a period, but that doesn't mean that the damage to your nerve cells in the brain has not stopped. So that still perpetuates. And the nerve cells in our brain are not able to divide normally and will no longer be regenerated. What's gone is gone. Um, so to, to deprive a child or an adolescent's brain for oxygen or restrict it in any way is dangerous to their health. And um, this deprivation can really drive an onset of dementia as well as disability. Wow. Now again, for essential workers and kids in school where there's no other options, what do we need to do? So we need to consider, as I talked about in episode 199 of the Naturally Nourished podcast, the importance of breath. We have to understand that our respiratory system is a muscle that we can enhance its function through practice, just like lifting an arm weight, which would expand your bicep, right? So as you get stronger, you push your body and you teach your body to create resilience. Well, we know in the Marines that they're actually able to enhance the oxygen capacity of the lungs through training. We know people like Wim Hof have done remarkable uh, exercises to help people with oxygenation. And this is really important because we have to compensate for that blockade, that facial covering, which would hinder our oxygenation. And we have to ensure that we work with breathing through our nose, sealed lips is really important because actually your your nasal passage is a better filter than any mask, um, maybe not comparative to an N95 respirator, but any facial covering to breathe with an open mouth like while you're wearing your mask is actually going to take in larger risk factor to your body because your nose is going to create filtration, there's pH changes, there's antibacterial compounds in the nasal passage, um, there's lubrication and moisture. So there's a lot of shifts that occur to the air that you breathe in versus a big gaping hole of your throat when you mouth breathe. So breathing through your nose is really important, sealing those lips and teaching your children to do so. I would also say it's important to keep your nasal passages moist at this time when we're talking about prevention of anything, cold, flu, and um, virus of any form. Um, Stella's been pretty good. You were shocked, Brady, that she's like using the uh, spray on her own, right? Oh, yeah. She, yeah, she'll do it at night and in the morning by herself. And she's like an pretty advocate. Impressive. Yeah, no, really. She'll be like, Mama, I need that nose spray. And now we've been rotating. Now that we are in cold and flu season, she was doing the X Clear before. And now she's doing a combination of that as well as the Sovereign Silver. Um, so now she'll do some colloidal silver, especially if she has any gunk. Um, I have a little bit of gunk now, so I've been doing like 10 sprays and it's 10 parts per million in the concentration. I can link that product in my show notes. And I've been doing like 10 sprays three times a day to just really get my ENT system reset and to ensure if there is any form of, whether it's sinus infection or viral compound, to really make sure that that is washed out and that my immune system is able to um, you know, really respond to that. Also, within that vein, we could consider more use of mouthwash. So, you know, there's a lot of dentists now speaking out about mask mouth because you're not able to expel that oral bacteria because that's what facial masks do. They don't, but I know, right? They don't block viral compounds because virus is way too tiny, but they do block bacteria. And that argument from people that will say, 
oh yeah, well, so I guess it, I guess doctors and surgeons just don't know what they're doing wearing masks, or I guess dentists, no, no, they're wearing that surgical PPE, protect personal protective equipment, but they're wearing that to block their saliva and their oral bacteria to get into an, a sterilized surgical environment, or they're wearing that to not spit into your mouth when they're working on your open mouth, right? So yes, masks do block bacteria, but for the wearer, that's concerning because that means that that bacteria that your body's used to expelling is being recirculated, and that can exacerbate periodontal gum disease um, and can be quite severe. We're also seeing things like maskne, right, acne on the face. We're seeing higher amounts of styes, so different eye infections because of, again, that vapor, that bacteria that's going into the eyes and staying really moist. We're also seeing higher incidence than ever of strep throat um, because, again, right, strep is treated with antibiotics. Strep is a bacteria, not a virus. And if you are to be exposed to strep, your body's not able to expel it. You're recirculating that deeper into the throat and the infection will be more severe. So things you can do beyond mouthwash would be uh, using antibacterial, antiviral herbs. Um, and the form of essential oils. So essential oils can be diffused in your child or your own household in your bedroom. Um, you might consider things like oregano, thyme, tea tree, sage, lemon balm. These are all beneficial because they are antimicrobial, antifungal, and antiviral. So you get that good cross coverage. They smell good. <laughs> and this can be a great way to offset that um, impact. And then the last thing I want to say is on the emotional, spiritual, and humanity side, I think it is of utmost important that uh, you do ensure that your child has playtime or connection with other peers not masked. So whatever your comfort zone is of that, maybe it's a pod, so maybe it's a couple neighbors that you stay in close connection with, maybe it's everyone, um, maybe it's you know just uh, ensuring that there is connection to other people that are consistent, maybe like a classmate or something like that. But it is important that they're still able to learn those nonverbal cues. That's so important for socialization. And as their parent, it's important that we're able to spend more time loving them up. And what I mean by that is the amygdala, the fear-centered brain goes on haywall when we're in an environment of this like sterility. A lot of kids right now have blockades on their desks. They're having to wear their masks. They're not able to touch their neighbors. They have to stand in single file lines, socially distanced. So that's very isolating, even though they are back to school, which is better than being at home. We still need to overcompensate for that by giving them long hugs by encouraging touch in other ways. So maybe you start to do some form of like a back rub. Maybe you do other forms of things like you bring the family pet more into the area of space where they're touching that. They need that oxytocin. Oxytocin is going to help them to feel safe. It's a natural antidepressant and it does enhance immune function as well. We might even also practice more gratitude in the household or incorporate empowerment um, terms. I always talk about what we do with Stella with affirmations and such, but all of this is really important so that they feel connected, they feel full, they feel loved, and they feel safe. All right, so let's move on and talk about asymptomatic spread. This is really the why behind masking, right? The messages are you don't wear a mask to protect yourself, it's to protect others. What do we now know about the asymptomatic transmission? Yeah, so you know, 
I had thought when I heard of this all going down in May and, and leading into the summer, oh my gosh, well, the, the CDC recommendations for back to school never happen because we have those 40,000 kids in the YMCA programs that there were no outbreaks, you know? So clearly during the peak of the highest death toll in, you know, March, April, April really, you know, we had children that were participating in YMCA, the, the children of essential workers, and there was no transmission. And we've, you know, long said, or it was said that asymptomatic transmission may not even be significant. But now that's been in the summer, a really quick pivot of the reasoning or justification behind masking. However, there was just recently released a paper out of Wuhan, China, that looked at a massive post-lockdown COVID-19 testing um, report, and they found no evidence that positive cases without symptoms spread the disease. Again, positive cases without symptoms is an asymptomatic carrier. So this was published in the journal scientific journal Nature. It looked at the results of screening initiative that was held between May and June in Wuhan. And, you know, of course, this is the city with the first cases of the novel coronavirus, right? And um, they found nearly 10 million people were tested and they did not see any statistical significance and incredibly no new symptomatic cases were registered. Only 300 asymptomatic cases were detected. And again, they found no asymptomatic spread. In fact, a pull quote is, no evidence that the identified asymptomatic positive cases were infectious and they uh, would adjust prevention and control strategies in the post-lockdown period. The asymptomatic individuals, which would include generally speaking children or health, metabolically healthy individuals, could be aged all the way up, right, through the 75 or so forth. The impact is that if you are symptomatic, that means that you have a higher viral load, right? So back to that person who's coughing, you know, 17 or whatever times per 30 minutes, you know, this person has a high viral load. Their body's trying to expel the viral load by coughing and sneezing. If you're asymptomatic, you have a low quantity of the viral load, and this way you do not have enough illness to pass on to other people. Wow, that's crazy. I don't think there's any media coverage on that either. Yeah, it's been like hidden really well in the media. So we're hearing more of the lockdowns in the dark winter. Let's start with lockdowns and should we be doing lockdowns right now? Right. I mean, I think the first question that we need to start to empower ourselves with as the majority of my listeners are uh, from the U.S., I, I of course love all of my listeners internationally and so forth, but we have to first question like, are these legal, right? It's been quite disturbing what we've seen in the year of 2020 in the breakdown of what we were supposed to have in our separation of power of our three branches of government. So taking you back to <laughs> whatever grade you learned about this, right? We're supposed to have a legislative, a legislative branch, a judiciary, a judiciary, and an executive branch, okay? And, you know, rather than being run by the legislators that we vote into power, these are the ones that have the legal power to make the law, we're being ruled by the executive branch. And what we're seeing is really an abuse of power by the executive branch. We're seeing local governors creating rules and regulations without the legal or constitutional power to do so. So there are these emergency orders that were put into play in the late spring, early summer. 
And really the extent of their legal power should be in a emergency order. And then legislature must be brought in. And this has not happened. I mean, we're still operating on what is bylaw, not even law. So these mandatory mask laws or, or rules, bylaws, again, not laws, and social distancing orders um, really aren't following our constitutional rights or freedom. So this is a big thing that we need to start to be aware of and really question why there would be this tyranny going on or this overreach within our three-branch system. I think further to consider this and, and think of, so that's if lockdowns should even be legal, I guess, right? And then the next question is, do lockdowns make sense? Are we in a pandemic? And um, there was a researcher from John Hopkins, another article that was removed, <laughs> wild, uh, Bryand was the last name of this researcher, and they found when they looked at CDC statistics that there was no increase in total death. There was an increase from, you know, the increase from COVID co coincided with the proportional reduction of other primary causes of deaths. So we were seeing a reduction in heart disease and cancer, for instance, in the similar influx rate of COVID. So this researcher stated, you know, this is not a pandemic. This is a recompartmentalization, right? Um, a pandemic, we would see a su substantial influx of total mortality in our country, and we just have not seen that. Okay. So this is where I hear you and other health leaders saying this is a case-demic versus a pandemic. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so right, it would be a, if it was a pandemic, we would see bodies dropping left and right. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. there'd be more death. We definitely don't see that. What we do see when we talked about flatten the curve, flatten the curve, it was always discussed as death toll and not overwhelming the hospitals. Um, first off, on the idea of lockdown, I don't believe in it. I think that the concept and the wording, the verbiage is just very manipulative and negative and harmful. And when we look at quarantining, you quarantine the sick, right? So if we're talking about a cattle rancher that has a diseased cow, he doesn't take all of the cows and put them into a barn and lock them up and not allow them access to pasture, sunlight, and good nutrition, the use of their muscle mass. He knows that that would deplete the herd. The whole herd would get sick if he did that because he knows that cows, and I'm just making this likinghood, right? people we need quality of life factor we need joy we need freedom to choose we need access to outdoors we need lack of restrictions and creativity and inspiration right and when we are in this space of quarantine to protect others that only hurts everyone so when we're talking about this being a case-demic and the manipulation that's occurred in the media messaging and what's being used, I believe, illegally by government to hinder our rights, is the fact that we're using a PCR test. You know, the PCR test is not designed to be a diagnostic tool. It cannot distinguish between an inactive virus and a live or reproductive virus. And that's a really crucial point um, because, you know, inactive viruses are not interchangeable with reproductive viruses, right? One can infect, the other cannot. And what's furthermore concerning, the developer of the PCR test even himself stated that this is a huge faux pas and that this would create a false pandemic if used in this way. And when you look at the use of PCR, a swab is going to collect RNA from the nasal cavity, okay? The RNA is then reverse transcribed into DNA. 
and this must be amplified in order to be discernible. So there's these amplification rounds that we call a cycle. The number of amplification cycles is going to be given by any test, and that's called a cycle threshold. It has been stated by Anthony Fauci in June of this year that when you go above 30 cycles, that is statistically insignificant because the sequences of viral DNA end up being magnified to the point that the test will read positive even if the viral load is extremely low or the virus is inactive, posing no threat to anyone else. So there's generalized consensus that over 35 cycles is scientifically indefensible, yet the World Health Organization recommendations are set to 45, and most testing facilities are doing 45 to 52 cycle thresholds, which right there, we're seeing 80 plus percent false positives. We're seeing cases going up, we're freaking out and suggesting and making testing more accessible, and we're not seeing the death toll. Okay, so we're looking at recategorizing deaths, not significant amounts of new deaths. Right, right. So not a pandemic, and it is being pushed as cases go up, but these cases really don't have much validity. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, right? And I mean, even the CDC, um, RFK Jr. just shared recently that the CDC now has reclassified, I don't know if y'all saw, in, in 2020, uh, the CDC stated that they are not reporting <laughs> influenza as a cause of death, they've actually created a triad of um, pneumonia, influenza, and COVID, and all of those are actually being called COVID deaths. They call it IFC? PIC, I think it's called, or or IPC. It's those three, influenza, pneumonia, which is spelled with a P, and um, COVID, I I believe it's PIC or something like that, yeah. Yeah. So really wild. I mean, we now know that the fatality rate of, you know, SARS-2 COVID is, you know, 0.02% to 0.4%, far lower than the 1% to 4%. It was projected 4% last winter, and that's why people were freaking out. Um, And we're really seeing the death rate much more similar to that of the flu. Now, the fact that we're combining it with the flu and pneumonia might cause false argument that the death rate is higher, but that's that's statistical insignificance and, and mass manipulation of data, to say the least. We're, we're really seeing, and I will post in the literature um, some statistics here, that as we saw in October, the World Health Organization actually reversed its stance on lockdowns. They've been so wishy-washy. It's unbelievable. But anyway, now they're saying that lockdowns are no longer recommended, yet here we go in, in the ideas of, of this potentially coming nationally in the new year. And again, the danger of SARS-CoV-2, we've seen plenty of data showing that the lethal rate is on par with common flu. The absolute risk of death is equivalent to the risk of dying in a car accident. And that yes, it may be different in terms of symptoms and complications, but the actual lethality is about the same. And just like with masks, the idea of lockdown and social distancing doesn't seem like a neutral intervention, does it? No, no. I mean, yeah. What are some more concerns of lockdowns? So what we are seeing in the Texas area, I most recently saw released a fail rate of schools at five times higher. And this is the individuals that are staying at a virtual school model, you know, versus attending school. So that's a a hit of lockdown. 
we're seeing you know lower activity lower time outside which is going to reduce our vitamin d which creates hindrance on how the immune system functions we also see with less activity lower muscle mass so we see sarcopenia or muscle wasting we're seeing disrupted sleep patterns a lot more screen time which throws off the autonomic nervous system by depleting dopamine and creating this addictive tendency which is often then filled with low nutrient processed refined foods because when dealing with anxiety and depression and low dopamine we're looking for a pick-me-up right and so you know it's it's widely concerning especially when we know that the cdc clearly states that from ages 10 to i believe 30 39 i believe it is the number two cause of death is suicide so we're really creating such a hindrance, and then that's not even hitting the economics of this, just, just on a health principle. Um, but I think that the economic impact is really going to just be detrimental. We're already seeing the small businesses absolutely collapsing, and we're seeing a huge influx on the big wigs. Like, you know, Amazon is increasing its revenues, as we're seeing with other large things that are open, and we're suppressing the small middlemen. Okay, and the third area of concern I know you have hit on is disinfectant, disinfectants and toxins. Yeah. Should we really be sanitizing our hands all the time? And can you also dig into maybe some of the stuff that's being sprayed in schools? Yeah, so, you know, research and, and again, scientific consensus was always that uh, the immune system needs to be exposed to learn and be primed. So when we talk about households that have one to two pets, there's actually a correlation by the number of pets, the less amount of asthma, allergy, autoimmune conditions, because those pets bring in dirt, right? <laughs> and so that teaches, that exposes the child, and that creates you know, some rhinitis, like runny nose, or creates a response in the immune system that the immune system has to expel and you know, turn up its white blood cells. It's, it's all of its mechanisms of the innate and acquired immune function are from learning and exposure. So we even see, you know, vaginal birth versus C-section, breastfeeding versus formula. Having this balance with nature, like Joel Solitin said, what, a couple weeks ago, he said, nature is a benevolent lover, right? You need to learn to caress nature. And he was talking about that as far as gardening and farming. He said, when we look at nature like something that we have to wrestle <laughs> and harness, nature's always going to beat us back down. And it's true, you know, when we started using prophylactic antibiotics in, you know, the systems of you know, big confined animal farming, we started seeing superbugs. And then we started seeing people in hospitals with C. diff and MRSA. And these superbugs couldn't be treated with antibiotics because nature outsmarted the amount of antibiotic that was spilled into our groundwater. It said, what? Well, this won't kill me anymore. I'll, I'll make something else. So we have to be mindful that we're not going to outsmart COVID. Like we're just not going to. And we have to go back to, again, scientific consensus pre this wild season of narrative and understand that all other respiratory viruses in the history of man have passed through herd immunity and exposure. So the idea of spraying kids with Lysol and all of the garbage that's happening is very concerning 
because quats or quaternary ammonium are endocrine disrupting compounds. These can impact up to the next two generations of fertility to the exposed individual. This can impact on an endocrine level, not only our sex hormones, but also the way that our thyroid works. When we think of endocrine, it also includes hormone in insulin response. It also includes how the adrenals function, the fight or flight and cortisol anti-inflammatory pathways. And not to mention high amounts of disinfectants. Not only are we potentially disrupting our hormone management system as an endocrine disruptor, we're also sterilizing, right, the microbiome, which doesn't give us this synergy of good bugs to work for us. And you have biome that lines even your derm tissue. You know, you have an ocular biome. The biome is not just in the gut. So when you overhand wash, your hands actually oh, become get cracked. Some... They get more cracked, right? So yeah. in those cracks, you just broke a barrier of your immune system. Your immune system actually has little tiny hairs and different types of cells to protect you. When you break down those cells, you're now exposing an open wound to bacteria. That's not good. Mm. And then, you know, then the other concern is that a lot of these are stressful to our respiratory system. So even things like bleach, which was what was used in Stella School before I got them all on the um, hydrogen peroxide system, you know, the bleach itself is a respiratory stressor. So that was my big push to her school. I'll include that link to you guys as well. It's are they using it in all the buildings now? They are, yeah. Yeah, cool. hydrogen peroxide solution. And there's commercial solutions, which this is very... Uh, it is noted as to be safe and effective through... Um, oh, I'm dropping a blank. But whatever the organization that states... It's not the CDC. I'm not sure. But on what is an effective cleaner for you know, SARS-2 COVID. And uh, we are seeing that that is listed, the hydrogen peroxide. So it's safe. It doesn't put out volatile compounds and um, it doesn't stress the respiratory system. Why would we use something that hinders the respiratory system at a time of a respiratory virus? You mm. know? Yeah. <laughs> so now that we're updated with what's going on and the mismanagement, um, let's, let's, get into more positivity and okay what, what we can do yes so when looking at uh this particular virus and and honestly most with functional medicine we're always trying to just determine you know what is the root cause so in this sense when we're talking about virus we're looking at susceptibility plus infection equals disease so you could be infected or exposed to, but if you're not susceptible, right? If you have healthy metabolic health, if you are, have managed infl inflammatory processes, you have a good antioxidant status and you have a good nutrient status so your immune system is functional, then you have very low susceptibility. So you will not go into that equals disease part, right? You're not going to be symptomatic. Um, so that's kind of how we look at this. We look at how do we determine each individual? So maybe granny has higher susceptibility but in what area have we run her vitamin d scores have we run her inflammatory do we know if she's on an omega-3 we could get going on an omega-3 to help to regulate the inflammation could we boost up antioxidants in the diet and you know get the individual drinking more tea for instance we've seen that at harvard research has shown that tea green black white tea the uh, catechins and EGCG compounds in there can increase your interferon, which is a huge impact on immune system function. So I break it down to inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune insufficiency as the three areas of the susceptibility factors. And then we look at having a healthy, diverse diet that is 
abundant in micronutrients, right? So we're particularly focusing on foods that have zinc, vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin C. Um, All of these are big drivers to support and combat viral load or viral replication. For instance, we see zinc can reduce viral replication. We see vitamin D can actually impact um, on the receptor level. Um, When we're talking about these spike proteins, we see that vitamin D can actually um, envelope and protect against the virus actually penetrating. Um, And we've seen in research, what, 82% of individuals that had low vitamin D had more severity of symptoms and hospitalizations. So I think that when we think of anti-inflammatory, antioxidants, and these really important immune nutrients, we can really get to the root cause. So if we're hitting inflammation, I would say omega-3 fatty acids are key. Um, First off, if you wanna look at where you are, test your C-reactive protein. That's a good average on where your inflammatory status is. If it's below one, awesome, an HS, high sensitivity CRP. If it's below one, awesome, then just keep eating an anti-inflammatory diet. If it's anywhere above that, or you have elevated triglycerides, or your ferritin, that's another marker of uh, stress in the body and inflammation, then bringing in EPA, DHA extra, you know, that high dose omega-3 at two to three grams total per day is gonna decrease the inflammatory mediators. This is gonna also, we've seen in research, EPA, DHA extra can help with asthma and has been studied for COPD in any form of, you know, severe, um, respiratory syndrome of sorts. So the omega-3s are really key. I would say also if dealing with respiratory issues, you wanna check into how mast cells are being regulated in the body. Mast cells can be a response of your immune system. And many people, as we talked about with Dr. Becky Campbell and you know her histamine approach, a lot of people have histamine intolerance and imbalance in their body, and this can tie back to issues with the adrenals or issues with the gut bacteria. But on the forefront, looking at something like our BioC Plus, what's really groovy about this is we see high-dose vitamin C to be a successful intervention. In fact, many hospitals are using intravenous vitamin C. And in China, that was the primary. They actually had all of their first-line docs on one to two grams of vitamin C. How cool would that be to have provided our healthcare workers with and vitamin D supplementation or our susceptible population? Why not the elderly, right? This is a reasonable intervention and very cost-effective. But BioC Plus, beyond providing a potent, it's 600 milligrams of vitamin C per capsule. So if you're doing, you know, two capsules, you're at 1.2 grams. If you're doing three, and that's what I say, two to three capsules a day, three is going to put you, of course, at that 1.8 grams, close to two grams, right? Um, Our BioC Plus also has bioflavonoids in it. So you're actually getting hesperitin, which has been shown to actually you know, play a specific role in inhibiting the cleavage activity of the proteases of the SARS coronavirus. And um, this was a study back on the uh, coronavirus back from 2005. And then we also know that quercetin, which is also in our formula, um, is a mast cell stabilizer. So that will help those unregulated inflammatory processes to be anti-inflammatory. But we know vitamin C participates in immune function, in wound healing, in how we metabolize fatty acids, in our catecholamines, which are our stress-responding neurotransmitters, in our blood vessel formation, and so many other ways. And it has known antiviral effects as well. So another thing we could go into would be if we said omega-3s, 
vitamin C as like the antioxidant world. I'll hit on another um, maybe antioxidant and then we'll do a couple other nutrients. So another antioxidant of focus that I'm a huge fan of that I've been speaking of this whole season is NAC, N-acetylcysteine. Our cellular antiox has N-acetylcysteine and it has S-acetylated glutathione. Glutathione is the master antioxidant. And so this can actually support the respiratory system, reducing the oxidative stress in that system. We've also seen in a hospital environment, the use of glutathione in pushes and nebulizing glutathione. So breathing in, inhaling glutathione as a successful treatment for individuals that were getting oxygen therapy, preventing them from going on a respirator, which is huge because we've seen such severity of outcomes for individuals that have gone on those. So this is a key player. The cellular antiox in our line provides both of those compounds. And this is one that I recommend really across the board, like one twice daily. And then if infected or if becoming symptomatic, definitely leveling that up to like four to six even to really boost that anti-inflammatory antioxidant capacity. And this also is mucoactive um, or it can be an expectorant breaking up phlegm and mucus in the system. So that's another one that you can use if just dealing with phlegm, mucus, cold, upping your knack. And in food as medicine, bone broth is a really great source of knack. And you get the extra boost from bone broth because you're also getting that glutamine and that collagen and gelatin to really support the GALT, the gut-associated lymphatic tissue. Um, and you're also going to get that salty uh, warm liquid, which further is going to break up the mucus and phlegm. All right. Let's dig into sleep and melatonin. Yes. So I think, actually, before I do that, let me go into just a, a little touch on D and its importance and um, maybe an unsung hero, uh, magnesium. So D, I would highly suggest, again, as I mentioned, 5,000 IUs is a really good baseline. That's what we have in our vitamin D balance blend capsule. We also have the vitamin D balance blend in a liquid, which we've been now giving Stella 2,000 IUs daily pretty much since like the last three weeks since it's been the season of kids just being gunky, you know? So vitamin D is immunomodulating, it's anti-inflammatory, it um, can really impact the root of how your immune system functions. And it is important if you are using vitamin D um, that you are doing one that's balanced with K1 and K2 because that will ensure that the vitamin D is used appropriately and doesn't drive calcification of soft tissues. Prolonged use of just straight up vitamin D is not recommended because we can see calcium deposits in our arteries um, and other calcification concerns as well as things like kidney stones. So you need that vitamin D to have K1 and K2. But we've seen deficiency again associated with increased symptoms. We've seen um, vitamin D deficiency al aligned with increased medication use and also with reduced lung function. So it's another one that ties with things like asthma. The cool thing again, when we're looking about vitamin D is not only does it reduce the inflammatory cytokines, not only does it reduce the replication of virus or the survivability of virus um, and really supports your respiratory system against infection, but it also supports how your thyroid functions. So now you're getting better body fat burn and better metabolic health. Vitamin D also supports as a mood enhancer and regulator, being antidepressant. And so, you know, you're going to get this myriad of benefit versus just a one-shot approach. And, you know, I think that that's really important to harp home on to listeners. So I would say as a baseline, um, you know, we really want to cover 
um, with the vitamin D balance blend, the Bio C Plus, and then the multi-defense or multi-avail line, depending on if you're doing a prenatal or kids or just um, a multi-defense would be with or without iron, with iron for menstruating females, without for men and non-menstruating females. And that's going to be a good line of defense. And then there's all these other tools and levers that you can adjust accordingly. Cool. Did you touch on vitamin A too? Well, I mentioned vitamin A as a nutrient, and that works really in cooperation or um, in relationship with vitamin D. Um, it kind of house keeps or checks the vitamin D action in the body. And vitamin A is in all of our supplements, the multis at least, and it is in that active form. So it's a blend of carotenoids, which is the plant form of vitamin A, but then also we're going to get that retinoic acid form, um, which is the more bioavailable. And anytime you're incorporating organ intake, so if you're eating oysters or you're doing liver, uh, we've been doing a lot of the ancestral blends in our household with liver and heart, then you're going to be getting a nice dosage of vitamin D and vitamin A. All right. Now. So now let's get back into sleep and melatonin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we covered this a little bit on episode 180. So we have episode 179 when coronavirus was first discussed and then 180 right on the heels. And 180 is when we really started to geek out about like the ACE receptor function and the spike proteins and all that jazz. But all I want to mention with melatonin is we require natural daylight or sunlight to get into our pineal brand, uh, gland of the brain to actually support melatonin production. And again, the blue light throws off our melatonin. And melatonin is super important because it actually has the ability, it's an antioxidant. So we've talked about melatonin being protective against breast cancer. Um, melatonin is also protective against this virus. And one of the reasons or mechanisms is that it can pass freely into any cell and it can upregulate your NRF2 transcription. And what happens when NRF2 is upregulated is we get a boost of endogenous, meaning in the body, antioxidant production. So it triggers or stimulates the body to make more antioxidants. And what's cool is the melatonin we have in the Naturally Nourished line includes Skullcap. And I mentioned in also episode 180, Skullcap has been the go-to for you know traditional Chinese herb in respiratory viruses. There's a lot of studies that demonstrate its ability to be anti-inflammatory, to reduce oxidative stress, and to be antiviral, and you know has been used for various forms of SARS. Speaking of Chinese traditional herbs, I've heard you talk on how observational studies that support masking are grossly overlooking other trends in the population. Yeah. So let's say in Japan, is the fact that they wear they have mask compliance, or is it the fact that only three point six percent of their population is obese compared to our thirty two percent here in the U.S. Yeah, I, I think that that's a point that I always love to make. So thank you for bringing that up, Brady Miller. Thank You're you welcome. for reading my question. <laughs> so yeah, I mean. Exactly. When any of the studies that have looked at the efficacy of social distancing or masking, they, they've looked at countries like Japan as, an, as a for instance. But right, we're talking about a you know more than thirty time, excuse me, more than ten time increase of the population obesity factor. Right. So that's a huge difference, and we're talking about this 
disease being spread by inflammation and oxidative stress, well, we know that obese individuals have higher inflammation and lower antioxidant capacity. Also, we could look at the population in Japan and that they consume more tea. And I mentioned about the benefits of tea before. And then, right, they have access to these TCM herbs and they've been using these historically as a first-line defense. So they're using things like skullcap. They're using things like cordyceps uh, and rhodiola and, and ginseng. And, you know, these are in our adaptogen boost. I think adaptogen boost is a great formula during this season because we've seen that rhodiola can actually help with seasonal depression. So if you're feeling low, the adaptogen boost can be a great tool to bring in. But we know that the cordyceps, that, that fungus that is in the cordyceps and has been used in TCM, has long been used as a tonic to soothe the lungs and has been a treatment for fatigue and respiratory diseases, actually showing relief of lung fibrosis in patients that have suffered from SARS. So this would be something, the adaptogen boost would be a great tool as a preemptive, but also for those of us as we get into this long hauler, if we know that we were tested positive, we weren't symptomatic, but now we're experiencing fatigue, the adaptogen boost could really help the body in that sense, providing that cordyceps Rhodiola, we know, can aid with the function of the adrenal glands. I mentioned the mood impact. Um, also can help as an antiviral. And then ginseng can help with oxygenation to the brain. Also can help with homeostasis of our adrenals and uh, can support how our body responds on illness and microbial attacks. All right. Let's chat more on how to boost the microbiome to support both the innate and acquired immune system. I think probiotics are the unsung hero. Yeah. We hear a lot about vitamin C, D, and zinc. Yeah, I think like the only coverage that we have heard, which is very far and few between, is on those and very little on probiotics. And I think it's because probiotics are so powerful. Um, you know, there was that big smear campaign done in uh, May, June, when the media said, you know, from the AGA, the American Gastroenterologist Association, uh, where they questioned the efficacy of probiotics. And I went on to share six studies that showed, you know, the gold standard double blind randomized clinical trials on the efficacy. Um, so we just have to really start to question again where's the messaging coming from? Who's fueling it? So, probiotics do regulate the innate and adaptive immune response. And this is really important. I mean, probiotics have functions on our dendritic cells, our macrophages, our T and B lymphocytes. They basically regulate our immunomodulatory functions through the activation of our toll-like receptors in our gut. Um, and, and that's a big kind of learned or adaptive property. They impact our T1 helper cells and our anti-inflammatory cytokines, our T regulatory cells and our T helper cells. Um, so there's influence on our LPS, which is our lipopolysaccharide. This is an innate influence, which corresponds with how our white blood cell response works. And the probiotics also, just like mentioned with vitamin D, have a gamut of benefits. So we know probiotics can also flatten your abdomen bloating, can aid in bowel regularity, can support skin health, can support mood. You know, nature, you know, probiotics are nature's Prozac. So I really am a huge fan of trying to get probiotics in the diet daily, whether it's in the form of kraut, pickles, kombucha, you know, um, forms of kimchi. 
And even beyond that, during this season of cold and flu, I highly recommend using a quality strain ID probiotic supplement. So you might decide you start with my Restore Baseline probiotic, and then you do the probiotic challenge to determine if you need that targeted strength. Um, I just had an individual that's a nutrition therapy practitioner. She had shifted from the targeted strength to one that was like a garden of life one. And she noticed that the fiber blend in there, and I'm honestly, for the record, not a fan of garden of life. They use a lot of um, like ferments to try to get their active nutrients. They still have folic acid in a lot of their products, so it's not good stuff. Um, but anyway, she noticed that the fermentable fiber was actually driving more bloating and GI dysregulation. And when she went to the targeted strength, things went back into alignment. So, you know, really cool things when you're using a product and formula that work. I would say for this season, I'd probably just jump right to the big guns and I'd be doing a targeted strength probiotic or a rebuild spectrum. The targeted strength is just two strains, lactobacillus and bifido, whereas the rebuild provides um, eight different strains and is more um, broad spectrum. So especially if you were treated at any time recently with antibiotics, then you'd want the rebuild spectrum. Otherwise, you would just use that targeted strength for you know more of your daily go-to. Um, and along the line of gut health, I talked about bone broth already, but I'd also say the grass-fed whey is really important because our grass-fed whey in the naturally nourished line has those immunoglobulins. So, you know, the immunoglobulins occur when it's non-denatured or it's not high heat extracted. And these can really modify both our innate and adaptive immunity as well. Immunoglobulins can directly bind to pathogens. They can actually drive more phagocytosis and actually kill a foreign invader in the body. Um, you know, we've seen things like RSV, where um, bovine IgG has really neutralized the pathogen and been able to be a successful tool. I'll put a, a research link in there. Whenever I see anything going on with Stella's skin or Stella's showing any sign of any form of illness, we always upregulate the grass-fed way. And it's pretty remarkable on the impact that it has on that gut-derm connection and um, pretty quick to nip it in the butt. And then also a great way to get your protein into your kiddos. So doing smoothies, sending them to their lunches and such, great idea to get their immune system primed and support that gut health for that double dip of the innate and acquired immunity. Something I've heard you say about food and me food as medicine in general is you get multiple benefits beyond your targeted focus on like medications which can silence symptoms but cause other undesirable side effects. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like I just said with the D and, and like I'm saying with the probiotics, you get the mood stabilizing effect, you get the growth and development with the grass-fed way, you get energy, you get improved digestive health while you're supporting that immune hit. And, you know, we even get like the CLAs in the grass-fed way, which have been shown to be anti-carcinogenic, right? So they actually can protect against tumor growth in the body and can even help with insulin resistance and supporting metabolic health. Okay, let's talk about the V word. Will you be taking the vaccine? Why or why not? All right. So back in episode 214, I talked about uh, genetic mutations and I talked about uh, Stella's SNP report. So definitely go check that out. And in that episode, I talked about how she is not vaccinated and the connections of, you know, susceptibility plus infection equals disease. I'll say that again. 
susceptibility plus infection equals disease. And we were just talking about that in the sense of how to be proactive or manage your body if you are exposed, right? So we have to think about with this said vaccine, you know, um, first off, as a functional medicine practitioner, I am at the direct face of many forms of vaccine injury in my clients, some which are known and, and some which are not. I think a part of the blessing in disguise of this pandemic is cracking open the shell of awareness of vaccines. I mean, I don't think ever in the light of the public interest has people been, have people been talking about vaccines. Like, oh, can't wait for the vaccine, 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 vaccine. <laughs> and, you know, also the impact of how rapid speed this has been produced. And we know that generally vaccines take multiple years to really understand mechanism of action and um, validity. I've seen neurological issues, seizures, autism, cancer, autoimmune conditions, POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Wow. Um, yeah, Never right. Heard that. <laughs> and that, that, that's like when people have vestibular, like they get dizzy when standing up. Um, okay. Yeah, um, and, and it affects their circulation. And um, the reality, again, with respiratory viruses is that they usually run their course and they usually self resolve. So when we're talking about who's going to get the vaccine, I'm in a very low, I'm in the 99.999% um, case fatality rate population. And we're talking about hopes of the vaccine being 80% effective. So that doesn't make sense. Why would I prophylactically inject myself with toxins and this new technology, right? This is a new type of vaccine. This is an mRNA vaccine a nucleoside modified messenger RNA encoding vaccine, right? Which uses the viral spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2. So we're told, um, why would I inject myself with that on a cellular level with other known toxins and endocrine disruptors for something that I have very low susceptibility to and that I will very easily survive and may have already been infected with and already be immune to? So for me, the answer is a hard no. Um, other considerations, you know, again, one of my big concerns that puts a huge red flag up is why are we not talking about therapeutics? Why every time a successful therapeutic comes out, because the fact that we're not seeing death toll influx again and we're seeing cases so high shows that we're successfully treating this thing, right? It's being treated. We've learned so much. Our frontline doctors are doing amazing work and they've learned so much on how to better manage this condition. So, you know, when we're looking at um, treatment, treatment is available. However, the red flag is we're not talking about treatment. And in fact, in terms of things like hydroxychloroquine mixed with IV antibiotics, zinc, and vitamin C, we're actually banning discussion of these conversations, which is hugely concerning. If we were looking for beneficial outcomes, we wouldn't all be in the deep pants of the billion plus investments of vaccines. We would be looking at getting the population safe and protected at any cost and in any intervention that is successful. You know, So that's a huge concern of mine. And, and I also have to state that I'm not on board with the biotechnology that, that uses fetal cell development. We know that this is in the case of the Moderna, the AstraZeneca, and the Biologics vaccine. 
Um, we know that there were uh, fetal cells used in the testing of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, the Pfizer vaccine has stated that although the ingredient list is somewhat shared, there's patented information that will not be shared. And when you're looking on an insert of a vaccine, you know, there's a black box label on all of them. Um, anytime you're talking to your doctor about whether or not you should take it, you should ask if it's been shown to be safe. And when you see things like MRC5 or HEK293T, these are aborted fetal cells. Um, and I think a lot of people just don't know that. And, and it's not just on the ethical element of whether or not that's right. It's on the fact that DNA in your body does not respond well with the injection of foreign DNA put into your body, especially DNA that may have been in a preservative for a prolonged period of time um, and may be, again, accompanied with other toxins. There's also concern that I must discuss in the light of the implantable quantum dot and um, just to share, we do not know, and I'm not stating that this is in any of the vaccines that are being released now, but what I do know is that there was a patent application that was filed by Microsoft Technology Licensing, headed by Bill Gates, back in June of 2019. Of course, he is now separated from Microsoft, maybe because of this interest uh, conflict with the push of equanimity of all the world being vaccinated, right? Um, but this was granted international patent status on the 22nd of April of this year. And the title of the patent is Cryptocurrency System Using Body Activity Data. And the patent number is 060606. Also within this, there is the Quantum Dot Microneedle Vaccination Delivery System, which uses luciferase. Luciferase, um, and this is the possible influence that the vaccination would be readable long after injection. So this is basically a dye that would be scannable through something like an iPhone. And there are people that are covering up this information. So I think that we're at a place where what could have been, you know, conspiracy theory is just all too real. I mean, I, I will link the patent link myself. So y'all like, what? You gotta see it for your own eyes. Um, but the Children's Health Defense is a really good website. Uh, this is through RFK Jr. He's been doing a lot of information on you know, the CDC holding patents of vaccines and making monetary gains. And this is the same, of course, organization that does the scheduling and puts all of our children at risk. So um, you know, there was a screening of Gates saying just recently in an interview, so eventually there will be sort of this digital immunity proof that will help facilitate the global reopening up. Digital immunity proof. Um, so I'm just not into that. I'm, I'm not into prophylactic injection of toxins and, and neurological disruptors with a novel modified mRNA um, for something that, again, my body knows how to deal with. Well, that's a big decline. <laughs> oh, it's man. a bit diabolical. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, especially knowing risk factor and that now they're saying it won't even reduce transmission. That's crazy. Right. I think that a lot of the people that were pumped about the vaccine were like, oh, well, because once the vaccine comes, we'll all be able to get back to normal. But I don't know if y'all have seen the clickbait switch that has come so quickly of, oh no, expect to be mandated with masks for the entire year of 2021. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not in my All opinion. right. So what's up with the long haulers and what's priority or concern here? Okay. So 
when your body battles a pathogen, whether it's candida, whether it's SIBO, whether it's COVID, whether it's EBAR, whatever it is, um, there's residual debris. And this includes, you know, dead virus or bacteria or yeast and the inflammatory compounds that were used in the battling process. And many individuals that have inborn errors of metabolism or genetic mutations that impact inflammation and detox pathways, um, they will have a prolonged inflammatory impact where the body is still battling essentially the, the dead debris. So they can start to really experience things like chronic fatigue syndrome, aching in their muscles, um, they can start to have uh, really severe brain fog. We have to watch out again for the fear-based information. I was on um, UC Davis's website pulling a research study and the, the subject was the frightening uncertainty for long-haul COVID-19 patients. It's like frightening uncertainty. I just thought that that was some rhetoric abuse right there and just some manipulative terms, if you will. But, but the, the name of the game is basically if there's liver toxicity or stagnation in the liver or the individual has nutrient deficiency or known inflammatory conditions, then they're not going to successfully clear the debris from battling the pathogen. And so they can see um, at the um, delay things like blood clots or the achy joints, shortness of breath, coughing, headache, brain fog, chronic fatigue. My go-to is support with anti-inflammatory and support with detox support. On an anti-inflammatory level, I'm a huge fan of proteolytic enzymes. I would bring in my Inflamazyme at the moment that if you, if you A, know that you did test positive, and maybe even just at a base level right now, because again, it's gonna circulate through all of us, um, but just at a base level, um, doing the Inflamazyme at like one twice daily. But if you are symptomatic or if you have had COVID and you're dealing with this long hauler response, um, proteolytic enzymes, which include like proteases, trypsin, chemotrypsin, um, these actually can reduce tissue aggregation or tissue buildup in the body. Um, and so this can ensure that if there was any of that debris, that it isn't creating abnormal cellular formation, and it also can reduce the inflammatory response. And the inflammasome is paired with those proteolytic enzymes and then a nice cocktail of anti-inflammatory herbs. So there's turmeric, boswellia, ginger, quercetin, rutin, rosemary, all in there. So you're getting some of those mast cell stabilizers, again, which would help with that cough. You're getting the anti-inflammatory to help with the pain management. Um, so I would do the inflammasome at like six a day, three at rise, three at rest, or two, two, two. Um, and that's one that I would ramp up if dealing with any of this long haul symptom. Then I'd also ensure that you are getting a good quality omega-3, like the EPA DHA extra, two to three capsules, and that you're eating wild caught fish a couple times a week. I would ensure that that individual has their vitamin D level tested. You should be between a 50 to 100 is the gold standard. And um, if you don't want to go in and get your blood drawn, you can always do a blood spot at home. I can link that in our show notes. You can get that online. I think it's like 75 bucks to do a vitamin D blood spot. Again, a really great thing. If you're if you're testing yourself to go see your mom, like let's say you know you're in your 30s or 40s and you're going to see your mom who's 70 or 80, I would consider, because again, if you're testing yourself at a clinic with an 80% false positive, I'm not sure the value of that, of seeing whether or not you should hug your mother. I mean, I think you should hug your mother. But 
what about testing your mother's vitamin D and ensuring her vitamin D status is, opt is optimized? Because then again, you're addressing her susceptibility to the infection, right? So think, thinking of that as a, a good tool will be important. And then detox, um, I've just on the heels, today, today is day 10, woohoo, of my 10-day detox. So getting that liver, kidney support, really important. My detox packs are fabulous. I've talked enough about them, and I know this is getting to a long episode. So sulfur-containing compounds and the detox packs are key. I've had some people on a detox pack, one at bed for 30 to 60 days post-infection, and that's really supported them. And sometimes they'll even add an extra one in the morning when they're having a rough day. Okay, let's dig into lifestyle support for the long haulers. Okay, so I would definitely recommend playing with intermittent fasting. Well, A, keto. Keto is great because you're going to reduce the insulin demand, you're going to optimize your metabolic health, and you're going to bring down the inflammation and oxidative stress in the brain. So that's a great way to get on top of things. And then with that, you might play in some intermittent fasting. You know, fasting can really be a great way to upregulate autophagy and how the immune system is able to identify pathogen or some of that debris, if you will. Now, if the individual is um, at a low nutrient status, which would be the elderly, I'd say anyone above 75 and anyone below ages, uh, you know, 18 or so, I would still give them grass-fed whey and bone broth. I wouldn't just do a pure fast um, because quality proteins are really important to support that muscle mass. So if you're dealing with muscle aches as well and you don't fall in those age ranges, keep in a grass-fed whey. But doing some intermittent fasting could be great or maybe a one-day fast or something like that boosting nitric oxide. So I always am posting on Instagram the Zach Bush four movements, which are like squats, um, arm pumps, jumping, and then like this like kind of Tybo arm circle. I'll put a link to him doing it on his YouTube. It's pretty great, um, but that can aid in nitric oxide boost, which helps with circulatory function and bringing oxygen to all of your tissues. Remember, your immune system requires oxygen for function. I mean, our body needs oxygen for function in all capacity. So that's a great way if you're at a low pulse ox after prolonged um, infection with the long haulers. Also, I think of the autonomic nervous system. So anxiety, burnout, dysregulation of our fight or flight HPA access, this is going to chronically hinder our immune system. So um, beyond the supplement world, I know you said lifestyle, supplement world, I would look at like my anti-anxiety bundle, um, which has that relax and regulate and GABA calm and calm and clear. And then lifestyle, really practicing yoga, parasympathetic work like walking, meditation, gratitude, sleep, getting into that reset mellow mode, helping the body to feel safe so that it doesn't have to be on guard for a continued attack is gonna reduce the continued attack mechanisms of the body. And within that stress regulation, you might think of breath training. So I talked about episode 199, the importance of breath, but also using like the 478 breath in my anti-anxiety diet to really help to ensure that we are getting that vagus nerve to send the signals to the body of the fact that we are safe and we are sound. And there just is, you can't, I can't harp enough on the connection of the neurotransmitters and mood on, that's why the anti-anxiety diet is such an important resource. If you haven't read it, you gotta read it. Um, in fact, I have anti-anxiety 30 for 30% 30 off of my anti-anxiety diet and the anti-anxiety diet cookbook. You can grab a copy of each as a stocking stuffer. But we're seeing now, you know, tryptophan, which is the amino acid that makes serotonin, 
That gets depleted when serotonin is burned out. Serotonin responds to chronic stress, right? And serotonin is made by the gut. So if your gut is off, you're gonna have lower serotonin. And we know that tryptophan is in demand for NAD+. And this regulates you know, many mechanisms of infection. So low serotonin can create more mast cell activation or more of that chronic unmanaged inflammation with like the cytokine storms and such. So not only stress regulation, but really ensuring that our neurotransmitters are optimized. And I give you a lot of tips on how to do that in the anti-anxiety diet. All right, final question. <laughs> so censorship, which is a topic I know that's super frustrating to you. What's going on with censorship and what does the world need to know about? Oh man. So, you know, like I said, I think that the silver lining of all of this is that we are absolutely cracking the shell of the medical industrial complex at this time. Um, you know, we're starting to see this greater broken system, hopefully, of sick care, not health care, um, and the influence of big pharma, government, and the media and technocrats now. You know, I've, I've talked about before how pharmaceutical lobbyists spend the most of all lobbying efforts in government, including gas and oil, right? It's these large, large, multi-billion dollar industries. We just need more checks and balances and more transparency. That's what I'm advocating for. What's concerning is, as we've known, in the media, you know, when you watch your TV, you can't go more than three commercials in a row without an advertisement by Big Pharma. And this does directly impact the reporting and the narrative and the scripts that are given to our news and media outlets. So again, we're not talking about these natural solutions that are scientifically sound because that takes money out of the funders or the the meat, you know, the media funders of pharma and that takes money out of pharma's pockets because big pharma only makes money on people when they're sick, not when they're empowered and they're in an optimal state of health. Now, what's unfortunate right now is that the censorship is now really not allowing us to hear powerful messaging of the alternative, as well as allopathic conventional first-line doctors that are speaking against the narrative. So we're hearing physicians that are using novel treatments that are successful being removed from YouTube, being removed or not interviewed from the media outlets and being shamed and, and you know um, being spoken against and having their medical license being threatened for speaking out against anything that questions these really powerful narratives. And just to kind of put this in a full circle, this is crazy, right? So in um, February, YouTube CEO, Susan Walzjanacki, I don't even know how to say it. I don't think it's worth pronouncing it correctly because she seems to be a not good person. She outlined the increased action of YouTube that's now taking on the provision of accurate, timely information, playing a key role in halting the spread of this virus and protecting our communities. And this was her quote, of course, anything that is medically unsubstantiated. So people saying like, take vitamin C or take turmeric, those are examples of things that would be a violation of our policy. And we started to see that where these videos were being banned and removed, right? Meanwhile, these two, you know, vitamin D and vitamin C have not been covered at all in the media. It took until September 9th 
when Jennifer Gardner of all Garner of all people, right, a celebrity, interviewed Dr. Fauci, and I think honestly, frankly, caught him off guard in an Instagram live, <laughs> and she opened the interview, which is hysterical, with "Thank you for never lying to us." Um, this was a pull quote from Dr. Fauci: "If you're deficient in vitamin D." that does have an impact on your susceptibility to infection. I would not mind recommending, and I do it myself, taking vitamin D supplements. And then he also said, the other vitamin that people take is vitamin C because it's a good antioxidant. So if people want to take a gram or so of vitamin D, that would be fine. So what, hold the phone, in September, Fauci's coming out saying, oh yeah, I've been taking vitamin D and vitamin C this whole season, this is actually good. And yet YouTube is saying we're barring people that are talking about these therapies. And whenever, ever in the media have we seen any coverage or any recommendations on vitamin D or vitamin C? Not ever. It's extremely concerning. And especially when we're looking at pulmonologists, MDs, like Dr. Andrew Weber, who said back early onset, you know, he was using with his intensive care patients um, 1,500 milligrams of intravenous vitamin C. And, you know, we've seen again in Shanghai, in China, they were putting their frontline workers on it. In, prepar in preparation for this podcast, I had to look because I knew that there was a clinical trial going on with use of IV vitamin C for management and treatment of, you know, COVID-19. And guess what is going on with this study? The study has been terminated. Why? It was posted on February 11th and started. It was terminated on October 12th. So this is beyond the modern day book burning. It is harmful to humanity and it is harmful to our population to withhold medically sound interventions that actually enhance whole body health for the profit of a particular industry. And, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing that persecution has even begun. On December 10th, there was just an accomplished professor thrown into a psych hospital by force in France because he was speaking out against the narrative. So with that being said, I don't know what the answer is. I know that things are really scary. Dr. Josh Axe with 4.6 million followers on Facebook uh, just was removed from Facebook. So. I think we as the people have to continue to stay informed. I will tell you guys and promise you guys that my podcast will always be out. Even if freaking iTunes and whoever tries to remove me down the line, you will always be able to find access to it at my website, naturallynourishedrd.com, which is where I have the blog and podcast. And again, everything else is over at allymillerrd.com. I will keep fighting the good fight because it's about integrity. It's not about a business. It's not about followers. It's not about dancing within the lines. It's about getting out truth and supporting your medical freedom and ensuring that you feel empowered and safe and well. And you are. You are sovereign. You can claim your spirit and your own body and you are safe. And I think together, collectively, we can all get through this, but we have to all start acting. We have to question the narrative, step outside, take off the masks, start opening our businesses, and stop waiting for permission. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.